Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, hello, hello. On this exceptionally sunny Sunday, why are you watching me? Don't disappear actually go and enjoy the sun and the football if you're watching live of course most of you probably aren't uh when we've done this cracking show we're going to learn a lot today there's a lot going on to say the least as ever um covid as you probably noticed there's a pandemic going on uh which has defined our life for well over a year and i think having gone through three national lockdowns huge restrictions on our lives and obviously more severely 150,000 people who have died, around one in every 443 people in this country during the COVID-19 pandemic. Remember when we were told by the chief scientific scientific advisor that 20,000 deaths would be a good total, and yet we have suffered several times more fatalities than that. Those who've been hospitalized, those subjected to long COVID, uh, the, the, the overwhelming of our NHS, Uh, the huge economic and social dislocation. People were looking for light at the end of the tunnel. And that was called so-called Freedom Day, which was on the 21st of June, when all restrictions effectively were due to be dropped. And life, normal life, the before times, was supposed to come roaring back. It is not to be. Uh, That day will be delayed by at least a month. That's what the government are imminently going to announce. Why on earth are we in this situation all over again? And of course, anyone who's watched this uh, or listened to this uh, show will know that over and over again, we've done our best with some of the best experts in the country to detail just how the government messed this up by delaying lockdown, by opening up the economy uh, too soon without a functioning test and trace system, allowing variants to could be imported uh, into the country. Uh, allowing cases to rise so much that the risk of variants increased, which is, of course, what happened uh, with the Kent, now the Alpha variant, as it's called. Uh, Disaster after disaster after disaster. And here we are all over again, the Delta variant, which only was identified as first entering this country about two months ago, is now dominant, is far more transmissible and potentially, we believe, more likely to lead to more severe illness. Now, we're going to talk today about just how serious the situation is, uh, how long are we going to be stuck in this uh, this limbo, I suppose, for? Is the light at the end of the tunnel? What needs to happen? And we've got the brilliant uh, Dikti, who is has been on the show, for those who haven't uh, seen her before, always brilliant, one of the best experts we have in the country. And we're also talking later about the latest... Uh, oh, the Labour Forever War. Hmm. Well, it isn't about Labour specifically, actually. It's about Unite, which I'm a member of, one of the biggest trade unions in the country, the biggest private sector union in the country, the race for its general secretary. It could not be more politically consequential. We're going to talk about what it means with James Mills, a former Corbyn advisor. Just before I bring in Dipti, let's talk just quickly, uh, the usual housekeeping. If you're watching live, please click through to the YouTube link and press like and subscribe. That just helps the channel. 
the algorithm. Um, uh, we're doing uh, documentaries thanks to your support. Um, so we're going up to Batley and Spen tomorrow for the by-election. Uh, we're interviewing a lot of people from uh, the candidates uh, standing uh, and various other just to get a detailed sense of what's happening on the ground. You might see in a Hartlepool documentary, it's very well received. That's thanks to your support on patreon.com forward slash Owen Jones 84. That enables us to keep this channel and podcast and all the various different elements that we do afloat. Or you can use Super Chat, as John McKenzie's just done, um, or Warren Davies, uh, that you can put questions to our guests if you want to know anything and support the channel, you can do that. That's enough from me. Let's bring in Dipti Gudasani, who is the fantastic epidemiologist epidemiologist good grief <laughs> oh sorry it's been a long year um it's great to have you as ever Ditsy. let's just talk quickly um about the situation so if i was going to open up now uh the coronavirus dashboard run by the british uh, government it would tell me that yesterday nearly eight thousand people tested positive for covid 19 that in the last week that's gone up by 52.5 percent uh it would also it would tell me that deaths are pretty static which we'll come on to uh obviously all deaths horrendous but in the last week or so um 60 deaths and of course we do remember as bad as that is we had nearly two thousand deaths a day in january um, patients admitted, however, has gone up by over 15%. It's now over 1,000 um, admitted to hospitals with COVID-19 in the last week. Basically, how serious is the current situation? Because a lot of people will think, well, this is a completely different ballgame because so many people now have had, the vast majority of the adult populations had, have had one shot at least, and over half, but particularly those who are older and vulnerable, have had two shots. So people might think, well, cases will rise, but it's not, it's going to crash against bodies of vaccination, so to speak. What, what, how do you assess the current situation? So it is really serious. I mean, we've imported a highly transmissible variant that causes more severe disease, so two times more likely to lead to hospitalizations. And it's able to escape vaccines to a moderate extent, which means that one dose is no longer as effective as it would have been with the Alpha or the so-called Kent variant. And we need two doses for a higher level of protection. But even that protection, while being reasonably high, is not complete. Um, and that leads to a really concerning situation because what we're seeing now is cases doubling every nine days, and that's exponential growth. And when cases double every nine days, we know that we can rapidly reach very high levels of cases in a matter of weeks. And while vaccination will weaken that link between cases and hospitalizations, it's not broken yet. And we can clearly see that because we can see hospitalizations rising quite rapidly actually in the Northwest and more slowly in uh, over England. And we know that there's this sort of gap between case and hospitalization. So we'll see the full impact uh, in the coming weeks. Um, we're also, um, you know, we also have about 1 million people already living with long COVID. So we can expect to see this sort of increase in cases to lead to much more morbidity. So, you know, many more people being ill for long periods of time. Um, and in terms of hospitalizations, we will continue to see this. And even in terms of deaths, only because only 40% of our population is fully vaccinated. So have a reasonable level of protection, which leaves a lot of people unprotected. And even if those people are individually at lower risk because they're not as vulnerable, when you have enough people get infected, which will happen 
with exponential growth, um, overall, you can still have a very high burden on the NHS. And sadly, you can even have deaths then among those people who are unprotected, but also among those people who are fully vaccinated. For example, last week, we saw data that 28% of deaths are among those that are fully vaccinated, which is much, much lower than it would have been without vaccination, but is still concerning, which means, you know, everyone is at risk, even even with vaccination, when the risk is lower, there is still considerable risk, and we need to keep that in mind. And of course, none of that speaks to the risk of future mutations arising on top of the Delta variant, or new variants being imported from outside that could potentially escape vaccines even more, and put back the progress that we've made in the last six months and bring us right back, back to square one, unless we sort of prevent that transmission happening because transmission happening at high levels alongside vaccination is what creates uh, the perfect conditions for this virus to develop, escape mutations and adapt. Oh, and I think you're muted. Sorry. I've silenced myself. Um, <laughs> I'm so sick of hearing my own voice that I thought I'd spare the world my inane Stockport lil. What I was trying to say, as I yelled into the void, was in terms of uh, the sorts of people being hospitalised, who are we seeing being hospitalised? Because a lot of the news suggests we're actually looking at younger people being hospitalised at the moment, which a lot of people, I don't think, still, after all this time, think is a thing that happens. Yeah, so the majority of people sort of being hospitalised are the under 50s. So I think there's a big peak sort of between, you know, 30 and 55 particularly. Um and, you know, it, it shows that young people can get sick, particularly with this variant, which is unfortunately more severe. And it, it's more severe than the so-called Kent variant, which is already more severe than the original virus. So uh, there is a significant risk to young people of being hospitalized, of getting long COVID. Uh, and all of those risks need, need to be treated really, really seriously. We can't ignore those risks. One in five people who are young and healthy go on to develop symptoms for five weeks or more, about 13% go and develop symptoms for 12 weeks or more. And we don't know the consequence of these long term, but we know that many people who develop long COVID actually have some evidence of dysfunction in their organs, whether it's scarring their hearts, scarring in their lungs or in their kidneys. Um, and all of this you know, creates risks that we don't fully understand yet, which really brings into question why we think it's okay to even expose young, healthy people to a virus whose long-term risk we don't understand. In terms of the so-called Delta variant, which I'm glad we're now calling it alphabet because you know, we don't even know if it started in India, but it, it, it's, it's not helpful to start uh, identifying variants by where they're first located for various reasons. But the, the, the Delta variant, what on, how on earth did we end up in a situation where it was obvious that that there was a new variant in India. And I mean, I know this is probably an a, a political and economic question, so I'll try and make it something that isn't. But it, all the way through this pandemic, what we've seen is this false dichotomy between the economy and public health, that uh, taking strict measures, according to many of the Conservatives, including Vishy Senak, who took anti-lockdown sceptics into 10 Downing Street uh, last autumn in a successful attempt to prevent a circuit breaker lockdown, um, was that if you take, if you that lockdown measures should be resisted because they're bad for the economy, but obviously if you allow a virus to run rampant, it's worse in the long run for the economy, and that's why we have some of the worst economic consequences. With the so-called Delta variant, 
they wanted to do a trade deal with India. So they, they, he was going to go to New Delhi and do a big negotiation, big televised event. Uh, and so they delayed putting it on the red list. So what is that? If we'd put that on the red list earlier, would we just not be in this situation? I think putting India on the red list earlier, which, you know, we certainly should have done, would have helped. It would have helped reduce the number of imports of, you know, cases seeding into our community. But I don't think it would have prevented this. And actually, SAGE warned in January that unless we had comprehensive border restrictions, that is mandatory quarantines, managed quarantine from all countries, we would be importing new variants of concern. Because the fact is, by the time a country identifies a variant of concern, it's already too late and has probably been imported into many other countries. And that's what happened here. If you look back into our retrospective data that we have now, we know this Delta variant was actually in the UK in February, uh, late February, even before it was detected as a variant of concern in India. So putting it on the red list while having slowed things down wouldn't have prevented it entirely. And this is why we need comprehensive border restrictions, which is what SAGE and independent SAGE have been saying for a long while, but the government hasn't implemented this. The government has also created this false dichotomy between sort of lockdowns, which they think are needed to contain the pandemic and, um, you know, freedoms and letting it rip, etc. The truth is that if we had good, you know, border measures, good test trace, isolated support systems, good uh, measures dealing with aerosol transmission, so masks and ventilation in workplaces and in schools, we could have actually done a lot of mitigation without the need for hard lockdowns. Lockdowns are essentially a failure of pandemic strategy, the failure of control of pandemic strategy. So when you continuously don't don't have measures to keep cases down, that's when lockdowns are needed and come into place. Uh, countries like South Korea, for example, have never locked down because they had very, very good public health measures, the sort of public health measures we still haven't managed to put in place. And even now, when we talk about Freedom Day, you know, you see articles in the Telegraph and in the media, which are all about, oh, lockdowns of freedoms. And nobody is discussing the very, very simple measures that we've completely not put in place that could have managed aerosol transmission and prevented the surges we're in. And the current situation we're in, you know, government seems surprised, which is really odd because they were warned by SAGE in um, February, you know, 22nd of February, when they laid down the lockdown easing plan, which had nothing to do with containing transmission. There isn't a single test in there about containing transmission. The idea is just to keep things below NHS breaking point. Um, and even then, they were warned that there would be a surge and there would be a large third wave. And of course, that has been made worse by the Delta variant. But none of this was surprising. It was actually very much part of the government plan and the government knew about it. On May 13th, even prior to stage three, they were warned that there would inevitably be a large third surge and with a highly transmissible variant reach January levels or exceeded in terms of hospitalizations. But they went ahead with May 17th. So to suggest now that, you know, all of this was somehow inevitable is quite disingenuous given this was very much part of the government strategy and the government doesn't seem to care about high levels of transmission or importing new variants um, in, in the longer term. And that's very, very concerning because you know, our borders are still quite open. What if a new variant comes in that's almost completely resistant to vaccines? And then what are we going to do? And I think it's really false economy to suggest that that is not, we can't have those border restrictions because we need to protect our economy. What happens if you get a variant that renders the millions that you've put into your vaccine strategy uh, and the billions you've put into pandemic control completely ineffective? What happens then, you know? Yeah, I'm just looking at Andrew Hayward, uh, Professor Andrew Hayward, who's on SAGE, SAGE advisor. He said today that 
the Delta co- Delta is 60% more infectious, twice as likely to land an unvaccinated person in hospital, uh, that it's doubling, as you said, every two weeks as things stand, that opening up would fan the flames. Um, I suppose, though, I mean, with existing measures, I'm dreading asking this, to be honest. Um, with existing measures, is that... Is, is it just gonna, you know, is all things so open now that things could spiral out of control? I mean, there's a race against time, obviously, with double vaccinations, and every single day, thousands of people, thankfully, are getting shots in their arms. Are they gonna? Do you think they'll end up having to curtail existing freedoms? Will there be a backward slide, or do you think it's just likely we'll be stuck in this limbo for a while? So, I mean, the SAGE modeling clearly showed that even stage three, that's the May 17th uh, lifting of restrictions, will lead to a wave that could potentially be as large as the January wave with a variant that was 40 to 50% more transmissible. We now know that this variant is actually worse and it also escapes vaccines to a degree. So, yes, I mean, just restricting June 21st, and that's the right thing to do, is not going to deal with the crisis that we are in now. And we are in a crisis. Um, and to do to deal with that, I mean, again, I mean, the reason that we are having to put in restrictions in place is because we haven't sorted out other things that could keep cases under control without those restrictions in place. You know, so yes, if we don't have a functioning test trace isolation support system, if we're not supporting people with isolation and they're not coming forward for testing because they don't have the finances, and if we don't have mitigatory measures in schools where a lot of the transmission is happening, then yes, we will have to put in restrictions because unfortunately restrictions then are the only way of containing transmission. They shouldn't be because many countries have managed to do this without huge levels of restrictions in the population. But unfortunately, 16 months down, we still haven't managed to fix those basic public health measures. And we are still counting on lockdown as our only measure to contain this, which is a huge failure of public health. And yes, vaccinations will certainly help, but you cannot compare exponential spread of a virus that's doubling so rapidly with vaccination. Even if you vaccinate people very, very quickly, like we're trying to do, the rate of spread is going to out, you know, outstrip the rate of increase in vaccinations and vaccinations take time to act. And a large number of people, you know, still don't have, are not eligible for vaccines as per our current criteria by JCVI. So, you know, children, adolescents, still you know cannot be vaccinated so we're in a a very very precarious position and you know how long we'll be in this completely depends on what the government does will the government continue to follow this policy of not following evidence and living with the virus and acceptable deaths which is literally what keeps us in restrictions for long periods of time because it means we're never able to get on top of the pandemic and we repeatedly have new variants that are more transmissible more severe more able to escape vaccines, replacing previous variants that makes it even harder and harder to contain the virus, even with vaccinations? Or are we going to pivot to an elimination strategy like other countries have done so that we can protect our vaccine resources while we roll out vaccines and make sure they're not threatened by new variants, as well as protecting our young people and our vaccinated people to ensure that they don't end up in hospital, they don't get long COVID. We can do all of that and we can actually do all of that without the need for huge levels of restrictions. But it means that we need to accept that our public health systems right now run by private companies aren't working and we need to fix them. And we need to accept this transmission happening in classrooms and invest in ventilation, invest in masks, provide schools and workplaces with those resources, support people to isolate. Unless we do those things, which actually don't require huge levels of restrictions, we are going to be stuck with this in a long period of time. 
Just lastly on that, Manuel Sylvester says a government needs to admit the mistake for not putting India on the red list soon enough. Because of this, it's damaging people like me struggling to get on the job ladder. And of course, so many people have suffered economic consequences of this terrible, terrible disaster. If Freedom Day doesn't happen 21st for the, for the foreseeable future, I suppose what finally, what hope would you give for people? Do you think that we will get to a stage where life as we recognise it does return. And I suppose, do you think just finally in the winter, will we see, you know, will we end up with booster jabs uh, to stop variants, that kind of thing? Or will we see in winter potentially some forms of restrictions all over again? So I think the hope I can give to people is actually we have agency and the government has agency if there is political will to do the right thing. And that means pivoting to elimination. There are countries that are leading near normal lives. Look at Australia, look at New Zealand, you know, look at countries like Iceland, look at a lot of Southeast Asia. And yes, they've had outbreaks months in a while that have led to, um, uh, you know, them needing restrictions for some period of time. I'm sorry, I have a six-year-old here. I it's all right. We'll, I think no. we're, we're nearly done, so we'll let you go after this. Um, yeah, so I, I think pivoting to elimination is something that our government could easily do. And that means that we could return to near normal life even as vaccines are rolled out. For example, Australia has a much lower level of vaccination than us, but they're not relying on vaccines as their only way for a near normal life like we are. And they're not dealing with a huge impact of all these new concerning variants like we are. But you know, we've chosen this living with the virus strategy that creates a huge amount of uncertainty. It creates uncertainty from importing new variants. It creates uncertainty from having new variants evolve. And um, it, it means that, you know, we we have no idea of control over when this situation gets over. I mean, you're talking about boosters now, and, and that's a really concerning part. You know, with a variant that has high levels of escape, the sort of narratives you're hearing are, it doesn't matter much because with two doses, you still get high levels of protection. While that is good, that protection is still lower than before. And it also means there is likely less protection against infection and transmission, which is very, very important in terms of achieving control of the pandemic at population level. And it also means that uh, immunity is lost earlier, particularly in those more elderly groups or people with other diseases. And that's what the current data shows. So you will need booster doses earlier. All of those things have actually a massive impact on the pandemic, which shows us to what degree importing a variant like the Delta variant has scuppered our response that was primarily based on vaccines. So if the government adopts a multi-pronged approach alongside vaccination, focused on protecting vaccinations and keeping transmission down, then I think we can hope to be out of this by winter, you know, and return to a near normal, even if everyone isn't fully vaccinated. But if the government continues the strategy of living with the virus and letting transmission continue until we break the NHS completely, then I'm afraid we will be stuck in this for a long time. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping 
and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. DT, that was, as ever, a masterclass. Thank you so, so much. We'll let you go and tend to your, to your little one. I know so many of my friends have kids uh, who've, who've been juggling that during the pandemic. I know it's not been easy, but we really appreciate it. Your, your work is absolutely fantastic. Do follow it on social media, D-G-U-R-D-A-S-A-N-I-1. That's on Twitter. Do do that. Thank you so, so much. Really, really appreciate it. Lots of love and I hope you enjoyed the film as well today. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. So before I bring in my next fantastic guest, um, if you're watching live, do click through to YouTube and uh, press like, subscribe. Uh, also listen to this on the podcast. You might actually be listening to it on the podcast. That's incredibly meta. But if you're listening on the podcast, do subscribe. Leave a leave a rating. A good one, if that's all right. <laughs> Don't, don't be harsh. And a review if you can. Now, uh, before I bring in James, I just want to just explain what we're going to talk about now, because I don't think I've felt more frustrated in my entire life. It, it is kind of like watching a horror film unfold in real time where you know what the ending is. And it's a really, really horrible ending, like a really unpleasant, horrible, nasty ending which you're going to be stuck with for a very long time. And I'm talking about the contest to become the next General Secretary of Unite Trade Union, which I've been a member of as long as I've been a Unite. Uh, I was a member of the TNG before that, which was a predecessor union, and then it fused with Amicus. Now, Unite has been at the absolute heart of the British left for a decade under the leadership of Len McCluskey. Len McCluskey's demonised like powerful trade union leaders who stand up for political causes tend to be. Jack Jones before him uh, in the 1970s. Now, Len McCluskey has, uh, is someone whose leadership has been instrumental in supporting. I remember when Occupy happening, he was supporting that. UK and Cut supported the campaign against tax avoidance, supported by Unite. The class think tank, which brings together all these economists to flesh out alternative ideas, set up, funded by Unite. The People's Assembly Against Austerity, which has done mass demonstrations and protests across the country, backed, funded by Unite. Left-wing MPs who got selected, backed by Unite. The, the shift to the left within the Labour Party that took place, that was absolutely, uh, Unite's role was absolutely instrumental in all of that. Now, in the race to become his successor, there are three left-wing candidates. Those are Steve Turner, Howard Beckett, and Sharon Graham. There is one right-wing candidate called Gerard Coyne, who would be a return to the sort of 1950s right-wingery within the trade union movement, viciously, aggressively anti-left. And what will happen if he wins is he will... Uh, let Labour Party democracy, you can just wave goodbye to that. I know some of you are like, what democracy? Oh, you'll notice the difference. I mean, they'll change the leadership rules so no left-winger can ever get on the ballot ever, ever, ever again. And only a hard right-winger who makes uh, Keir Starmer look like a raging lefty will be the next possible successor. The political fund will uh, not be used to support left-wing causes. The strike fund will be gutted. There will not be the sorts of industrial struggles that have been successful, which United have been at the forefront of. Um, it will be a boss's union. I can't tell you how terrible this will be. Now, 
In the nominations which have taken place, so I should just explain, United Left is the left grouping within Unite. That was Len McCluskey's faction. Um, and they decided to back Steve Turner to be their candidate over Howard Beckett. So he became the official left candidate. Now, I've seen so much nonsense about Steve Turner on social media. I can't even begin to, I don't know where to begin. I mean, it's honestly ludicrous. The idea, reading that Steve Turner is a right winger. Steve Turner is a lifelong socialist and trade union militant. He he used to be in the militant tendency, a Trotskyist organization, incidentally. Uh, he ran Len McCluskey's campaigns to become general secretary. He's the co-chair of the People's, uh, People's Assembly Against Austerity. Uh, he, he campaigned for Jeremy Corbyn to be leader twice. He voted for Rebecca Long-Bailey in the leadership election. Uh, he's backed by the Communist Party. I keep making that point and people go, oh, all these McCarthyites get angry about it. But the point I'm making is he's clearly got the left, the left candidate. And what the reason this is so terrible, what's going to happen is in 2017... Gerard Coyne, the Unite, um, the Unite, uh, uh, sorry, in 2017, in the race to be the next Unite General Secretary, Len McCluskey stood, sorry, against Gerard Coyne. What happened is Len McCluskey won a massive majority of the nominations from union branches. What happens is union branches nominate and it shows grassroots feeling. He won 1,185 branches. Gerard Coyne, the right winger, only got 187. So you kind of look at it and think, well, Len's going to walk that one. He didn't. He didn't walk it at all. In the final result, Len McCluskey won 45.4% and Gerard Coyne won 41.5%. Now, some of you would then go, well, obviously that shows nominations don't reflect where people are out in the membership. Well, what it shows is the right wing just do a lot better in the actual election than they do in the nominations. So even though Gerard Coyne came fourth in nominations this time round, and he only just got on the ballot paper based on his nominations, he will do much better in the election because he's got a big pool of voters who didn't take part in the nomination phase. Whilst the three left-wingers will be fighting for the same votes. So then he'll win. And that's what happened in unison recently. The two left-wing candidates got a majority between them. Tough luck. It's first past the post. So the right-wing candidate won, even though she only won, she got a minority of the votes. And that's going to happen. It's unbelievable. And I, I mean, so many people are saying, well, Howard Becker, he's so much more visible on social media and louder. Got a huge respect for Howard Becker. His social media campaign has been brilliant. But unfortunately, social media and the political real world aren't the same thing. If social media is as successful as lots of people would like, the Northern Independence Party would have won the Hartlepool by-election, but they didn't. They got about 200 votes. And that's not to diss them, by the way, because I really respected their energy and verve. But being loud on Twitter and what actually happens, in this case, the nominations in which Howard Beckett came third, Sharon Grain came second, and Steve Turner came first by a very long way and got the biggest industrial branches, what's going to happen, and this is just like watching a car crash in slow motion, is Steve Turner, if people don't unite around Steve Turner as the candidate who got the most nominations and the biggest branches, is Gerard Coyne's going to become General Secretary of Unite in about a month. And the left is going to be gutted. Anyway, I'm going to bring in James Mills now. Um, and we're going to talk about this. James Mills is a great guy. James Mills used to work for Jamie Corbyn and he used to work for John McDonnell. Um, he is himself a veteran of the trade union movement. He used to work for the Communication Workers Union. So he has impeccable 
credentials. Hey, James, sorry about that. I had to get that. Hey, mate. Out. No, I, to be totally honest, I think you, mate, you said pretty much. Um, you, you've taken a lot of the stuff I was going to say. I mean, I, I literally agree with every sorry, word. I have, I oh, oh, no, after no, 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 you probably did a bit better than me as well. I mean, I think for transparency, me and you have known each other for, I forget how how long, but too long. Since 2006? <laughs> yeah, yeah something like that. Yeah, I mean, we'd, I remember you and me chatting about politics back then. And I think the reason why I want to make that point is that in our lifetime, shared experiences, the Labour Party, the change that's happened, I remember you and me the first time. I remember the first time I met you talking politics with you, uh, and we agreed on virtually everything. We were talking through it, and we come to came to the Labour Party, and I was working at the time for Labour, and I was honest with you, and I said what I could and couldn't say, even though what I believed in it, uh, and, and because of the way the Labour Party was back then, people forget it. If you joined the Labour Party in the last five years, you know you probably won't remember stuff like that. Um, that that you would because because there was, was a sea change under Jeremy. One of the things that happened is you could wear your heart on your sleeve. You could say what you believed in. Being a socialist wasn't a dirty word. And talking about your political beliefs and and being in full solidarity of trade unions. Because you know I think I've, I've told you a story before, but I, I I worked for the Labour Party in Scotland when I first cut my teeth. And I always say to people, if you want to see the future of the Labour Party. That's it. That you know that is playing out there in a petri dish. That's what's going on, and it, the Labour Party can go that way. Yes, we might have the SNP as a challenge, obviously, or it's that sort of like left progressive, if you want to call it, um, nationalist party. But there's plenty of other people to choose from, and you're seeing that in the polling over the last uh, year with Starmer. If you look at the polling there, it, the polling where Starmer's losing his vote, it, he's not retaining. He's not retaining 2019 vote share. If you look at the, so, admittedly the cross sections, but if you do look at even the YouGov polling on this, it shows that, and, we're, and then he's losing votes to the Greens and the Lib Dems and part of the problem I think like had in Scotland is that lack of being able to, to, to have authenticity encourage what we believe and say and have those links in community groups and that link to trade union movement and where that comes from because one of the early stories I told you before when I worked in Scotland I remember a very senior sort of official at the time in the Labour Party up there saying to me you know the biggest problem with the Labour Party the biggest problem the trade union movement now so people like you and me, I'm not saying how aghast I was because my parents were both trade union shop stewards. You know, I was probably a trade unionist before I was even a Labour Party person, you know, and that's quite sadly quite a rare thing today. And it's very rare for my working, as you know, I'm from working class background and um, grew up in a council state, single pair family, go, went to university, first generation of my family, but comprehensive, all the rest of it. And, you know, that, 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 that sort of trade union culture has declined over years. You know, and it really has. You know, most of my mates I went to school with, even that at their generation wasn't as much sort of trade inflation. It's getting worse. And and I think if you don't move towards that movement sort of structure in politics, as well as a trade movement, it's only going to get even more, you know, worse for us. And I give those examples because that belief, that, that sort of outlook, if you like, of the trade union movement being almost an enemy of itself. It's a very old Blairite view of you define yourself against your the, the, the trade union movement in the Labour Party to project yourself off to sort of, target votes you want to reach and that sort of enemy within sort of culture that could return and I, I make no you know that really really could return there are people in the Labour Party who would love that to return and the thing about coin the reason I said no I'm sure he's I'm sure he's a lovely person if you had to, to, to meet him right I'll put my hands up the moment. but the people supporting him and the groups around him that's what they want to return to these are the, the grown-ups that think they know how to run everything and that's what they want to and, and like you say and I want you I'd say but when when Len first ran I mean we of uh, vote for him in 2010 and he was up against uh, Les Bayliss who was the right candidate he got about 46,000 votes right and that was a sort of seen as the real potential challenger to Len back then you go back to 2017 Coyne got 53,000 votes 
not not a massive sea change. There's a core vote there, and where uh, Coin is in particular, he has a lot of support in sort of the West Midlands, which has got big branch, big unions there, especially on the um, in the car car uh, car sector part of the industry side of it. And you know, look, but the thing in particular is that you've got to bear in mind is that I think it was about just over a million members in Unite in 2017. It was just it was very, we had a big drop off. Um, I think that in the last year they say they got up to 1.4 million, so it's gone back up. But you know that that is a big sea change in membership. We don't know how active those members will be. You don't even if they'll take part. Turnouts can be quite low. According to the Coin Campaign, the tactic is about raising the vote share. I think they, in 2017 they say they're trying to target 20%, um, but there is a 12% turnout overall, I believe, from memory. So like um, the, the attack didn't work then. I mean, they talk a good game, but let's not underestimate them either and I, I think some people have by saying they're not even going to get the ballot they got the ballot I, I wasn't surprised by that um they got the ballot they are more organized better funded now and they're determined and if you split the left vote if you split that vote you you, you are helping them a vote for anyone other than turner is a vote for coin that is a very simple thing and he, just look at the previous elections and i said i'm quite passionate like you about it because look, i've worked with steve he's he's a really solid guy i think he's a very solid trade union. It's the idea he's right wing it's just ridiculous uh, i mean i mean, yeah no one serious thinks he's right wing i mean i've just the things people say go, go on my facebook thing. page and tell people because the yeah. stuff the stuff distributed is honestly some of the most yeah crazy stuff i've ever read in my entire life he's, about a lifelong socialist yeah he's a working class guy. yeah he's a working class guy from my background he was involved in 2016 and 2015 and, and i'll be totally honest with you we probably couldn't have uh, you know we it, he, the support in 2016 you know some of the things people don't see i mean i worked as you know and i worked in both jeremy's campaigns and you know and, and in 2016 you know i'm not sure i can publicly say but the sort of uh, the support we got particularly from steve you know, indirectly, you know, it was crucial, crucial. I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm not underplaying that to Jeremy Corbyn's uh, re-election. Like we, we, you know, people probably won't realise, but we were really close to 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 not to to, to you know not having 2017. That you get as a marker as a bit of inspiration in our movement. But in 2016, I always remember, you know, he's having a cup of coffee with John Mac, with John McDonnell, and it was in Portcullis House, sitting there. We thought we were gone. We waited on any sea vote to come through. It was being widely rumoured that it was going to go against Jeremy, and he wasn't going to be the ballot and all like that. I remember that, and and that and that sort of plan to sort of hold on to a recess to get into an election have it started the only reason why we held on was unite if i'm brutally honest with you and i, I could count on one hand uh, the, the group of people who didn't get wobbly even in, in our, our core group and as i say I, it, we came very close to the feet back then and, and it would have gone back you know if like you say if they do get back of it it's quite clear what they want to do they want to get rid of the current voting structure or make it even less democratic uh it, and and they'll send us back i think 30 years It'll be, it'll be a pushback to 30 years. and But it's worse than that because it's not just about, for me personally, it's not just about that, about what faction or grouping you're from. I generally honestly believe that pursuing that insepid sort of like reheated late noughties, so early noughties, late 90s sort of a, approach to politics, which is what people around Coin want the Labour Party to move to. And what we've been seeing, if I'm brutally honest with you, is a death knell for the Labour Party. And... And it matters to me because I'm a working class kid. I want people from my background to 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 have Labour governments and to do and move on. And Steve Turner's the kind of guy who wants that as well. And he will be working. You know, he'll be working. Like he will work with Starmer. That's not necessarily a bad thing if he's trying to influence Starmer to adopt policies and push him in the right direction. Um, 
but yeah, like you said, I, I do think there's other aspects of this. That is quite if you're a trade union member, it is a little bit depressing because sometimes it's always about the Labour Party sort of prism on things. But it does matter in this election because there's also a bit of an Easter's existential crisis going on for the trade union movement. Mm-hmm. And you all know that it's about is it going to move from being a servicing model or an organising model? And I think there are those sort of divides in this election. But then I think Steve gets the right balance there as well. I think he's you know a bit of both, which is what you need. Yeah, I mean, again, I mean, uh, it's interesting reading some of the... I mean, I, I, I'm not doing this to castigate people. It's very important. I understand, by the way, why people, the, those supporting Howard Becker, I understand. You know, yeah. people are angry and fed up with the Labour leadership. I am. Anyone who's read my col- columns or watched his channel and various videos, I think they understand that I'm very angry and frustrated, to say the least. So I understand that. The, the point, and people here are saying, well, you backed Steve Turner from the beginning. Well, I backed him because he won the United Left nomination, which decides who the left candidate is. If, if Howard Beckett had won that, I'd back him. If Howard Beckett had won the nominations, I would now be backing Howard Beckett. He didn't. And the point that people are saying here, and this is why I get frustrated sometimes about social media, which is very important. I use mm-hmm. social media yeah. a lot, as anyone can see. Social media has, it plays its role. It's very important in political campaigning in lots and lots of ways. But it, it can have a downside. And the reason I can see the downside is people here are saying, someone said, Howard Beckett's the only one who seems to be campaigning. But obviously, if you look at the actual nominations, which is where working class people, where trade union members get together to collectively decide who's their candidate going to be through nominations in in their branches, in their their workplaces, then Steve Turner won by a land, he won by a huge margin. And he didn't just win... The nominations he won in the biggest industrial branches in the country and and i think the danger is people there are some people now behaving is though being louder on social media including amongst people i have to say who are not actually members of unite and who right. won't be voting in the election that is more important than the decisions the democratic decisions of the organized working class and the real test of how much you do as a left candidate, how much sway you have amongst the grassroots is how many nominations did you get? And Steve Turner came top, Sharon Grain came second, and Howard Beckett came third. And as you've said, the right vote, they don't tend to turn up to nominations, which is why they end up doing better in the elections, which is why Gerard Coyne nearly won in 2017, even though he got smashed in the nomination stage. And I think watching this, a lot of people go, well, it's, I just want, you know, Howard Beckett or nothing. They're going to get nothing. Exactly. Look, I don't think this is a, you know, look, I'm not into the grand conspiracies, but I always used to say in the 2016, um, you know, uh, leadership election, I always thought that was quite of a a mapping exercise for that group of the sort of Unite Now, the Labour, sort of Unite on the right sort of faction, and that group around it of Watson and people. I always had a sneaky view that that was actually a mapping exercise to try and win the next Unite General uh, Secretary election. I, 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 I say it quite, commonly among people I worked with because of the way I always thought that if he was going to sort of defeat Jeremy, it was the free person candidate they want. They, they, they cut a deal so it was two, it was a one-off. And I thought that looked like a, like a mapping exercise because people sometimes forget that, that there are people, in you know, and I think Starmer showed that when he got one election, who were on the left pre-2015 and voted for Corbyn in 2015, who we didn't keep in 2016, 2017 for various reasons. Like there are people who supported Corbyn who voted Starmer, you know, and, um, and, and I think you, if you look that into the trade union sector, there will be trade unionists in there 
Um, not, not talking about large numbers, as I say, we're talking about a few thousand people, but there will be people there who will listen to, well, there wasn't sort of anti-Len vote there. Uh, you know, I voted for Len, but there was an anti-Len vote. If you look at the numbers, speak for themselves. And there will be people there who are also sort of be probably against the Labour Party sort of framing of politics and, you know, won't vote Labour or even care to. And that's, and you do need a candidate that is going to be able to reach out to them. And I'm not talking about big pockets. And, it, and I think what Steve does, from my experience from him, is that he's one, very highly competent, but two, he's also someone who's quite thoughtful on, on issues and will reach out. And, it, and he's, it, he's driven by a sort of overall target where we're trying to get to and the trade union does need to update itself in the 21st century we can't pretend that we're you know it's the 1920s you know this next decade the workplace has changed and as i say like the thing about this that i think people need to take away from it is one he is on the left he is, he is on the left it's ridiculous to say otherwise you, you i think the other candidates have won good campaigns i'm not i'm not here to like talk them down i don't know um sharon or or um or Howard, but you know that you know they have one of passionate campaigns. They've got good nom- number of nominations. But you've got to look at, like you say, one: where are these branch nominations from? Two: what the sort of candidates they got to have to get across the line to secure that? And uh, and and three: I think fundamentally, who's best placed right now? Who's the front runner? It's clearly Steve. I think anyone on honestly would say that. And therefore, against what's probably the, the hardest um, challenge from the right in over ten years in 10 years at least, you know, um, who do you want to, 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 to be the front, to be your candidate? I think it quite clearly has to be Steve Turner. And the reason why I think, like you say, there's a lot of unknowns in this. There's an extra membership who's joined, but hopefully there are people who will be looking for, you know, won't be, you know, as I say, I'm not trying to say, I don't want to say some conspiracy of people sort of entryists, like you've got the Labour pie, but it's, it's a new pool of people. Some might be more active than others. Uh, and if they turn up and they're not following, you know, political education, what you want to call it, people's awareness of the things, they'll look at that and they'll look at Gerard and they'll look at the internal fighting Labour pie. There will be people that will be open to that. And I think one thing about Steve is I think he's quite, uh, it, people, he's a quite a common sense person. I mean, his interview with you, I think, demonstrated that. He's very sort of down to earth. A guy's working class uh, for a bus driver. He, he, you know, he talks to you on a level when he gets that. I think, he, I think, he, and he does get the issues of what's for the union moving forward. How he needs to position itself is going to be a large super union, and how you need to get on with the Labour Party. But like you say, if we don't. If, if there isn't a sort of keep coin out success here, you know, um, I do think the party will go back 30 years. I mean, I, I'm not saying that, and I think the party and the union will move back. So I think it'll move down the, mm-hmm. the periphery. And as I say, you know, you know I, I don't think electing Steve is, is is a status quo thing. I think he would, you know, be it'd be a it's sort of like you know a turn a page election, if call a phrase. Oh, but I think, he would. <laughs> I think you would. <laughs> I think I think you I think you will bring in some changes that would improve the union as well. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting as well, because actually just looking at the 2020 Labour leadership election, which you just spoke about, and if we actually look at the breakdown by candidate, uh, so in the affiliated section, that's the trade union section, Keir Starmer came, he got 53%. Lisa mm-hmm. Nandy actually came second, 24.6%. The candidate we voted for, Rebecca Long-Bailey, got 22.3%. So again, this idea all of a sudden that there's this big, you Did know... You know well, ex- exactly. I mean, that was she was the United candidate. She lost amongst United yeah. members. I mean, that, bells are going off, and people need to pay attention to it. And as I said, like, I, like, I'm not, not trying to push this conspiracy. In twenty, I said in 2016, I thought that because I looked at what I would do 
if I was them. It looked like there was a mapping exercise, and I think you saw the first shines of first sights of it in that first United election. Say first one in 2017, you saw it then in that United election. I think you saw it again the Labour Labour leadership last year. By the way, of the has been because what these elections are about in politics and about getting all sort of like. It's to get out the vote, okay? You're getting out the people to vote for you. So we talk about low turnouts, the rest of it. And they sort of boost the turnout to 20% overall. What they're really is targeting their voters. They want to get their voters out in this. It's getting the people out to vote for you. And that's why the branches do matter. So you get more bigger numbers, more them out. That's why Turner is well-placed. But also, it's knowing where your voters are. And I think that we're under playing or undervaluing some of the people who will be working on that coin campaign. I've met a couple of them. And, you know, I'm not going to out them on publicly i think some of them have been mentioned online but like these people it's not you know i'm not going to turn around and say these are like some evil geniuses but because they're not uh, but they equally can't be dismissed and 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 if you think there is an operation going on it it is and you wake up as i say like you say you wake up with a right-wing union and it won't just be for unite it won't be for unite members that suffer because i think it will lead to a failing electoral strategy that labor suffers and then we all suffer so that's why it's so important i think it's bigger i think it's a bigger election than the leadership election last year for maybe party more I, I think you've really spelled out what's at stake very, very clearly there. And I really, really hope that people either watching or listening to this pay attention because this really is an existential moment. It reminds me of um, people watch Terminator 2, a bit random. <laughs> when, when there's a scene where she, has a, where she has a dream and she can see she's in a kid's playground and she's watching herself with a kid and she's banging on the fence trying to scream, but nothing comes out. And then the bomb, the nuclear bomb goes off and everyone dies. That's how this feels. It's well, just, then, uh, I mean, just look at my Facebook page. Take, taking that inspiration and the message that should go to the candidates who I think are talking today as well. Know, well that, we, there's no fate but what you make. So I only have one left candidate. That's true. <laughs> that is what Ian Scrolls, uh, Sarah Connor Scrolls on the bench. It's, it's, uh, well, that's brilliant. As people say in the comments, very, very informative. So thank you so, so much, James. Really appreciate uh, it. And let, let's, have a, let, let's have a, I've got to go to a student demo, so I better hurry up. But let's have a pie in IRL. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. We owed a few after this last year of craziness. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> All right, lots of love, buddy. Right, and I'll take care, mate. You too, buddy. Take, take care. Bye-bye. I really do hope people listen to that. I, I mean, look, I mean, I, I've been spending probably too much of a sunny weekend arguing with people on my Facebook page. Some of whom are like, Steve Turner is a right-wing neoliberal. I've never seen anything. I mean, look, the internet is great in many ways, but it, it also, I think, leads to people spreading various forms of, well, we know it's a cliche, forms of misinformation, which are just clearly just not true, you know? And, and to see, you know, Steve Turner win the United Left nomination, which is the left faction of Unite, the agreement being therefore that the other candidate stands down, that didn't happen, and then win the nomination stage and then have people saying, well, no, it's Beckett or nothing and Steve Turner's right wing. I mean, you know, and then people, I'd look through the comments, I'm a right wing neoliberal. Okay, cool, cool, cool. And that's just my mum saying that. I'm joking, she wouldn't say that. Um, it is it, it, it is very, very frustrating. I mean, just quickly, I've seen some of the, you know, when we talk about just completely misguided uh, views of, of this, a lot of people keep saying um, on my Facebook, so I'm going to raise it because it's obviously something which keeps circulating. Well, Jeremy Corbyn uh, got the least number of nominations uh, in 2015 or 2016, but he won by a landslide. And it's not comparing like and like. An MP's nomination and a grassroots nomination just aren't the same thing at all. And actually, the like for like comparison is Jamie Corbyn in 2015 and 2016 won a landslide of nominations amongst constituency Labour parties. And for that matter, the nominations of the major unions like Unite, like Unison, 
like uh, CWU, for example. Uh, th and that showed he was going to win. Normally in trade union elections, the guy with the most, not the guy, sorry, the, the, the person, the candidate, good grief. Although, unfortunately, uh, it is too male dominating. That does need to change uh, because most trade union members are women. Uh, but the person who comes top of nominations tends to win. The obvious massive caveat, because people keep saying, well, actually, we'll just increase the turnout. Easier said than done. It's a postal ballot vote. We need to change the law, by the way, so union votes don't just happen through postal voting, which is obviously just ludicrous. It's the 21st century. Allow people to vote online, etc. You can't do it. That suppresses the turnout. Only then a small 12% or so are going to vote. That's how many voted last time. And the right can mobilize through their networks. They can have lots of money to campaign. And they have a pool of voters who we've seen in 2011 and 2017. They're going to outperform the nominations. Three left candidates are going to split the vote and the right-wing candidate's going to win. And that's why lots of people say, oh, it's a conspiracy. You just don't want Howard Beckett because you're obviously not left-wing. No, I want the left to keep in charge of Unite because it's absolutely critical to the future of the left. We're in so much trouble, so much trouble if the left lose and Unite. I've, I've, I, I'm, I mean, do I get on my knees? Beg? I think I've said enough. Just think it over, please, everyone. And I've, obviously the campaigns need to think it over because I don't think history is going to forgive people if they allow this absolute catastrophe to unfold. And time is running out because Wednesday is when the ballot papers are printed. And if they don't agree by then, very, very bad news. That's enough for me. I'm off to go to join a student protest in central London. Um, but thank you so much, everybody. We've got, as I've said, this documentary coming up about Batley and Spen. We're going up tomorrow or Monday, whenever you're watching this. Um, and we're interviewing a lot of very interesting people. Uh, and we're going to get a real feel for, is this basically the theme of the video? Is this game over for Keir Starmer? Or is it going to be a big boost if he keeps it? We're going to look at what's actually going on and what this means for the Labour Party in general. So thanks for those who support us on patreon.com forward slash owenjones84 uh, because you're the people who make this possible. And people on Super Chat, who I'm going to thank now before my producer um, has an aneurysm because he keeps messaging. Warren Davies, Miles Sylvester, John McKenzie, Shiny Darko, Mentizia. Thank you so, so much for your support. Uh, thank you, everybody. Um, thanks for indulging my rant. Oh, yeah, people are saying, is the United election done with first past the post? Yes, that's the problem. So you can win. You could win with 30% of the vote. That's, I know it's ludicrous. They need to change the electoral system. Why they didn't before is beyond me. Because then people could just put first preference, second preference. But they don't, They didn't. So anyway, please think, everyone. Think it over. Um, lots of love. We've got loads of interviews coming up, ranging from H. Bomber Guy to Will Young and uh, documentaries. We're live again next Sunday at 12 o'clock. Uh, take care, everyone. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for dealing with my frustrated rants i'll see you soon thanks for listening everyone i hope you enjoyed that uh, do support us on patreon.com forward slash owen jones 84 help us decide who we talk to what we talk about the documentaries we do uh, and also on the supporter function uh, which you can see in the description and leave us five stars and a review this just helps other people listen uh, and with that thank you so much speak soon 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.